Uh, we are in the midst of a series going through the book of Revelation. And the last few weeks had us looking at a great red dragon, uh, who we know as Satan, as well as uh, two grotesque beasts that are sent out by the dragon to deceive Christians and non-Christians with the ultimate goal of destroying them. The deception we found last week takes many forms. And so oftentimes in our world and in our lived experiences, evil is veiled. Uh, but the intent is that we would ultimately worship many unworthy things. That's Satan's goal with us, that we would worship many unworthy things. So that could be football, it could be Mother Nature, it could be a certain body type, it could be video games, it could be many things. I do hope that as we've been going through this series, and, and I'm pushing out a symbolic reading, not a literal reading, but a symbolic reading of Revelation, I hope that you're beginning to see some of the value of that. Like last week when we talked about the mark of the beast, that we don't need to look at our bodies trying to find that mark, that this is talking about spiritual, symbolic realities. And, and so it causes us not to look on the external parts of our bodies, but to look in the internal parts of our bodies, to check our hearts, to see what's actually going on in the deepest parts, what's motivating us and what we are ultimately worshiping. And I hope also that you're seeing that when we talk about the things in Revelation, that it's not just talking about the past or the future, that this is a present word for us today, that, that it has something valuable to say to us here and now. Okay, this morning we have a ton of ground to cover. We're going to try and work all the way through chapter 14 this morning. So in this chapter, there's three different visions. We're going to cover each of these separately. So we're going to read three different chunks from chapter 14. So let me read these first five verses, and then we'll get into this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray. God, I pray for our moments together here this morning. I pray that what we're reading in this chapter would be seen to have value for us today. And I pray that our faith in Jesus would grow in these moments together. So would you do what we cannot do in our own strength? Would you change us and draw us near to yourself and help us to see the beauty of the gospel? In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, if you would take these five verses that I just read and you would zoom out from them and you would see where they fall within the context of Revelation, you might wonder, 
what is going on here? How, how does this, how do these five verses, even this whole of chapter 14, how does this fit within the scheme of Revelation 14? Because we've just read about a dragon and beasts. And, and now there's followers of Jesus that are standing on a mountain, Mount Zion. So they're standing on this mountain. What we're about to read in the rest of Revelation 14 and following as well is just more brutality. And it's going to talk about bloodshed as well. So what is going on here? We're in a section of Revelation where we're receiving two explicit calls for endurance. So smack dab in the midst of some horrifying scenarios that may push us into a fearful retreat, we're given reminders of the conquering nature of Jesus and his church. This picture of Jesus' church, we'll talk about more here, but it's intended to give us hope, to remind us of who Jesus is and what he has done in this world, what he's doing even now as we walk on this, work, on this earth, even as we deal with really hard circumstances in our own lives. Because Jesus has defeated Satan and sin and death by dying on a cross and resurrecting from the dead, we have everything we need to endure in faith. The symbolic vision that John is receiving here is driving home how those trusting in Jesus will raise up out of the death-filled reality of this world. So, so there's this picture that Jesus' church, they're with Jesus on the mountain, on Mount Zion, and they're coming up out of this world that is filled with sin and with death. So that's part of the picture that we're receiving here in Revelation. We also see the central role of Jesus as Lamb. This is who Jesus was introduced as. It's the Lamb of God. When, when John the Baptist came in the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this Lamb, this meek creature, is the one who will stand over the dragon, who will stand over the beast that we have been reading about. And, and really, the imagery of the slain Lamb, I, I read somewhere this past week that I believe that there's 28 different references in Revelation to Jesus being the slain, the slain lamb. So this is popping up over and over in this book. This picture, this imagery of Jesus as the slain lamb is the crux of the Christian faith. It is vital to every part of the Christian faith. And we see here why Jesus was slain. The reason Jesus was slain was to save. To, as we see here, to have his church with him. Standing on the mountain. That, that's the picture of what we see here. Jesus with his church standing victorious above all else. And, and we, I want to talk to you just a bit about this where I'm getting the Jesus and his church. So the church I'm, I'm pulling from the 144,000. So 
the 144,000 is a symbolic number. Now we, if you go back to Revelation 7, we covered this in more depth there because that was the first reference to 144,000 in the book of Revelation. So if you were here for that, you don't remember it, or if you weren't here, have no idea what the 144,000 is, I'd encourage you to go back, listen to Revelation 7, and check out... um, a little more in-depth look at it there. But I want to give just a couple brief statements here so we can all be a little bit on the same page with this. So, first of all, this large number conveys God's awareness of each one. So, there's nobody who sits down and counts out 144,000. Like, no kid's going to count out 144,000 Skittles. Like, we're just not going to do that at any point in time. So what's being communicated here is a very large number. Yet it's also a specific number. So God knows every single one of them. So so we should read this symbolically. 144,000 also has the number 12 in mind. So 12 is a biblical number communicating completion. We see this popping up not just in Revelation, but in other parts of the Bible as well. And where we get the 12 with the 144,000, for those of us who don't love math, 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. So that's where the, the reference to 12 is coming from. And so biblically, 12 has in mind the significance of the tribes of Israel, as well as then the Uh, Jesus' disciples as well, those 12 men who were closest to him. In Revelation 7, there's also significance to kind of the ordering of the tribes as well uh, and and the specific tribes that are included in the list that's given back in Revelation 7. And and I'm not going to go into that this morning because we covered that at that time. But there's also significance to those realities as well. So ultimately then, the 144,000 is ultimately a reference to true spiritual Israel. Now, when we hear true spiritual Israel, we oftentimes think ethnically, right? But that's not what's in mind here. This is not ethnic Israel. Romans 9, 6-8 helps us understand this. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So just because someone is ethnically Israel does not make them true spiritual Israel in the sense of being part of Jesus' church. So this is not talking purely about children of Israel. It's talking about children of promise, those who have put their hope and their trust in Jesus. Okay, so the 144,000 is talking about Jesus' church, okay? There is a profound image being depicted here. So in the Old Testament, when I say here, I'm saying on the mountain, on Mount Zion, okay? So in the Old Testament, there's a great act of salvation that God performs. It's what we know as the Exodus, okay? So God's people were enslaved in Egypt, all right? They cry out to God, for salvation, God comes to them and he saves them from slavery in Egypt. After this, God leads his people to a mountain, a mountain named Mount Sinai. 
Okay, and at Mount Sinai, God gives to his people the Ten Commandments and many other commands and laws as well. But he gives to those people his, uh, the Ten Commandments. Now, that scene at that mountain is very different from the scene that we're looking on a mountain today here as well. People weren't allowed to go on the mountain at Mount Sinai. In fact, if they did, if they, they would die if they touched that mountain. One thing I've talked about throughout this book is that Revelation is a book of contrasts. So we've got we've to see over and over the contrasts that are occurring within the book. It will help us to understand it. So here I want to just throw this up. There are a number of contrasts. When we think of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, okay? Mount Sinai being Ten Commandments, Mount Zion being here with Jesus and his church. So Mount Sinai, people are not allowed to touch the mountain, whereas on Mount Zion, people are on the mountain. At Mount Sinai, people were separated from Moses, who was their leader. Here they are with Jesus, near to him. The sounds that were occurring at Mount Sinai were terrifying, whereas here on Mount Zion, they are inviting. At Mount Sinai, there was wailing and there was rebellion, whereas here at Mount Zion, they are singing a new song. At Mount Sinai, they were bearing Satan's name by creating a golden calf. Here on Mount Zion, they are bearing the Father's name. So this happens over and over in the Bible, and especially in Revelation, where there are contrasts occurring. And we can help ourselves to understand Revelation by knowing other parts of the Bible that, that um, create this contrast and speak to what's going on in the book of Revelation. Now, in Revelation 14, in verse 3, we see this depiction of heaven and earth intersecting. So Jesus' church, it says, is before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So this is bringing us back to Revelation 4. This is, is exactly the description we were reading about in the throne room. So as John was brought into the throne room, kind of the holy of holies, these are the same people, the same symbols, the same realities that he was seeing back in the throne room. And what he finds then is that here in Revelation 14 is those people on the mountain are singing a new song. A song that not everyone knows. Not everyone can sing. Only those who are saved by Jesus know this song and sing this song. It is a song of salvation. And so those who know and sing this song are the 144,000, are Jesus' church. They are the ones who will sing this song. Now what we also read about the 144,000 is it says that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. As I was thinking through this phrase this past week, this hit me with a bit of a thud. And just this idea of following Jesus. Following the Lamb. So it's one thing to follow Jesus wherever He takes us. Right now, I think if we look at our lives, we want the mountaintops. We'll follow Jesus to those mountaintop experiences, but the reality is he leads us through valleys of darkness, valleys of suffering as well. He leads us to places that we would never choose to go on our own. Following Jesus wherever he leads us is costly. It's costly to ourselves. 
So it's not just following Jesus. It's also how we follow. I began to think about how different people followed Jesus in the Gospels. I thought about Judas. Judas was one of those who was close to Jesus. One of the twelve closest to Jesus. He physically followed Jesus. He, he was there a lot of the times. But his following Jesus was limited merely to a physical following uh, of Jesus. So ultimately, what we see Judas doing is his following looked more like hunting. That's what his following looked like. He was following Jesus for his own gain. Another individual I thought about was Peter. Peter followed Jesus on his trek to the cross in a curious way. Peter wanted to see what was going to happen. But curiosity wasn't enough. As it led Peter to deny any association with Jesus. So it's not just following Jesus. It's not just following him physically. It's not just following him with curiosity. Because there's many people who do that. Following Jesus has this aspect of personal denial, of dying to self. Matthew 16 talks about this. Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' teaching, also what we're reading here in Revelation 14, leads followers of Jesus to a crisis. To a crisis of faith. Understanding everyone is marked spiritually. One way or the other. We're either either marked by the beast or we are marked with the seal of God. And we're going to find this in Revelation 14. Things are going to become very black and white. Very either or. The 144,000 were those who followed Jesus by denying themselves, by giving their life to Jesus completely. And this is the call for Jesus' church today as well. To follow him with everything in us. The 144,000 are a people also who in their mouth no lie was found. Now, these are people who are just like us. People who lived on earth, battling the same tendencies that we have today. Wanting to make ourselves look better than we really are. By telling white lies or telling a story that reflects us in the best light possible. If we are honest, we struggle with honesty. Every single one of us does at times. We struggle to tell the truth. The picture of Jesus' church on the mountain is one where they don't have that struggle anymore. And this is a stark contrast to Satan, right? We've been learning about who Satan is, who this great red dragon is, the father of lies. He's known for his lying tongue and his deceitful ways. This is what the the dragon and the beast are seeking to do, to deceive and to destroy For Christians, when we look at this church, these people around Jesus on the mountain, this is a picture of where Christians are headed to be with Jesus, to be with the one who is 
the truth. And so it's a call for us today, looking at where we might be headed, if we are trusting in Jesus, where we're headed is to be near to Jesus, to be near to the one who is truth. And and so it's a call for us today then to live in truth, to live in Jesus, to fight hard for being people of the truth. Okay, so first five verses, we're seeing this picture of Jesus and his church. All right, let's jump to the next section here, verses 6 to 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead, who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Okay, so crazy stuff there. This is Revelation, right? Three angels, each with a pointed message for the reader. So let's look first at the, at the first angel. It says that this angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim. This angel has good news that is needing to be shared. Not just shared, but shared with urgency. So recently at Center Church, we've been honing in on our core value of mission. This idea of making Jesus seen. Making Jesus known to those around us. Uh, I want you to see how the Bible drives this. Okay? We're not just saying, oh, we think this is a good idea. This comes from the Bible, our core value of mission. And this would be a specific example where we find this reality there. It's passages in Revelation that are shouting at us as followers of Jesus, we have the best news in the world. Christians do. There's many people all around us who don't know Jesus, who don't care about Jesus, who don't believe the gospel in any way, who believe it has nothing to say to them, who know nothing about what Jesus is about. And so there's this call for us throughout Scripture. Let's go. We've got this news, the best news in the world. Let's take this eternal gospel. Let's bring it to those around us. We have a role to play in this. Revelation isn't picturing a singular angel So that we think that it's just this angel's job. Jesus makes it clear 
that his whole church is sent into the world with this good news, with this gospel. Where do you see yourself in this endeavor of gospel spreading throughout the whole earth? Where do you find yourself in this? Sometimes I like to think about my life from the end and then live it backwards. And so as I was thinking about this this past week, like ultimately every single Christian is going to stand in front of God. And, and we're going to, you know, we're going to see, we're going to be able to look back at our lives. And, and when we stand before God, it's good for us to consider the realities here and now today, to ask questions like, what will our interaction with God look like? What will it look like if we spend our lives fearing man, not spreading gospel? Now, I know it's really easy for us to, to hear that question and, and hear guilt. So I want to be really clear. I, I'm not trying to shame any of us into living on mission. That, that's not my intent. But just understanding when we understand the gospel as Jesus declared it and depicted it for us, it is the best news in the world. It changes us. It compels us. It pushes us out to those around us. And it's good for us to think about these ultimate realities. What, what will it look like for us to have this conversation with God? The reason that conversation as we stand before God becomes so urgent is because of what we're going to read in the remainder of Revelation 14. That there are hard words that we were just reading there. And we're going to get to those in a moment. The second angel then, so I'm, I'm just going to totally pass this one off this morning. I'm not even going to touch it. I'm going to completely skip it this morning because we get a whole chapter uh, on fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So we're going to come back to that in a number of weeks and I'm going to pass this off until then. The third angel then brings us back to Revelation 13, what we were talking about the last number of weeks. The beast and its, um, uh, and its mark. So it's a clear word that those who possess the spiritual mark of the beast, so remember we talked about this, this is not literal, okay? This is a spiritual symbolic reality. Those who have the mark of the beast will face an indescribably horrific future. Torment no rest. Essentially, those who worship the beast are putting themselves into the line of fire of God's wrath and God's anger. So when we read this, I think many of us will read this and it's uncomfortable. We're like, these are the parts of the Bible that I just I want to skip over. But I think we just need to at least stop, pause, and acknowledge, like, this is a big deal. This is not comfortable. This is horrific. And this is what we want to help people be saved from. This is why we bring the eternal gospel to people. Now, in stark contrast to these really hard words is what we read in verse 13, that those who rest in Jesus, who die trusting in Jesus, are blessed. Okay, so, so we want to call people out of death and darkness and God's wrath. And we want to call them into salvation and into blessing. 
So in one sense, these verses can be really hard to read. But we're given a clear reason as to why these verses are written for us. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, their faith in Jesus. Revelation goes to great pains to make clear that everyone is worshiping either the beast or Jesus. Okay, so, so this is where we see some of this real black and white. This, is, this call to endure in faith in Jesus is not casual. Okay, it's not a soft invitation. It's an urgent call for people every day, day after day, and not just day after day, but hour after hour, minute after minute, to persist and endure in faith in Jesus. So what we're getting here in this chapter is blessing versus cursing, life versus death, heaven versus hell. It's very black and white. And we're getting this illustrated in graphic detail, I think, because of what we read here again in these verses here, but also what we're about to read at the end of Revelation 14 as well. So let's read the last seven verses of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the, the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay. So, Revelation 14 will make your stomach turn. It will make you uncomfortable. We get here, in these last seven verses, another contrast. Two reapings. Two harvests. We again see a clear delineation being made. Okay, so verse 14 speaks of a son of man. So throughout the Bible, this is a common reference made for Jesus. And given his kingly appearance here with the golden crown on his head, as well as similarities in description to what we read about Jesus way back in Revelation 1, it is most appropriate to think of Jesus in this context. Okay, so Jesus is coming, and he's going to reap. All right, so our two reapings or harvests here. First of all, in verses 14 to 16, we see a reaping of salvation. All right, and then in verses 17 to 20, a reaping of judgment. So there's an order here. First salvation, then judgment. Okay, so think about Jesus' life. This is what Jesus did 
as well. Okay? Jesus came first to save, then to judge. And so that's why we're reading this here in Revelation as well. Okay, so in both instances, we read about an angel possessing a sharp sickle. Okay, if you don't know what a sickle is, this is a picture of a sickle. This is a tool used in farming for cutting crops down. So these two reapings then, we get this picture of angels like swinging this sickle across the earth. So clearly symbolic. Okay, but these two reapings are reminiscent of John the Baptist's introduction of Jesus in Matthew. Okay, so if we go back to uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, what we read there in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So really what we're reading about here is similar to Matthew 3. And really, in Revelation 14, this is talking about two gatherings. That's what a reaping is, or what a harvest is. Two different gatherings. And again, we see this movement to a black and white paradigm, right? Some are gathered to Jesus. Some are gathered to punishment. It's one or the other. There's no in-between ground here. It's very black and white. What's envisioned here are two harvests that will be gathered upon Jesus' return. As readers, and we're confronted with this final separation, right? This is going to happen. This is how things are going to play out when Jesus returns. Now, as Western people, we think about this individually. And it's not wrong to think about this individually. Like, we all need to wrestle through this as individuals, But for those of us who are Christians, we need to think about this beyond ourselves because we're saved out of individualism and into Jesus' church. We're we're saved into a corporate entity. So I want to press this a little bit further beyond just the individual and push us to consider the harvest our lives are a part of. We're all sowing seeds. Every single day, we are sowing seeds for a particular harvest harvests, how we spend our time every evening, how we interact or react with our spouse or our sibling, with our co-workers, with our friends, with other students at school, the choices that we make with our money, the way that we talk about other people, over and over and over, we are sowing seeds for a particular harvest. So let's not just think about this I ask Jesus into my heart. No, no, this has everyday ongoing implications for the conversations that we have, for the decisions that we make, for the actions that we are engaged in. We are sowing seeds. You and I are working for a harvest. The book of Revelation is displaying to us our need to sow gospel seeds with urgency. That's what Jesus calls us to that we would sow gospel seeds with urgency all the days of our lives. Matthew 9, 35 through 38 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So at minimum, we can be praying for laborers, but I think even specifically our prayer can be for that, that God would send us, that we would have courage, that we would have wisdom to be sent out with this best news in the world, with his gospel. So pray for others, but pray for ourselves as well. Pray for our church that we would be laborers sent out for gospel spreading. All right. A quick word here on the picture we get in these verses. There's no arguing about the bloody reality conveyed here. Okay? 1,600 stadia. You probably read that and be like, that means absolutely nothing to me. Right? So I, I read someone say recently that 1,600 stadia is bigger than Lake Superior. Okay? So this is massive. Massive. I'm not interested in trying to make the Bible say something I want it to say or, or even to say something that's more palatable. This symbolic vision demonstrates that there are many who reject God. There will be many who reject God. And God's wrath will one day be poured out on them. And when God's wrath is poured out on them, it's going to bring about a defeat that is going to shut mouths, a defeat that's going to shake knees, a defeat that's going to make eyes bug out, a defeat that's going to turn stomachs, and that's going to take people's breath away. John saw this vision and wrote it down to show us how vital it is that we not buy into the lie in our everyday lives that it's just one sin. That we won't buy into the lie that it's not a big deal this time. That we not buy into the lie that today is meant for your selfish pleasure and your selfish indulgence. That you wouldn't buy into the lie to live for the here and the now. To be casual about life. This is an urgent call for us to believe the gospel, to take seriously what Revelation 14 is talking about. Now, if you find yourself struggling with this picture of Jesus, let's remind ourselves that all true love involves hatred. Okay? If God truly loves his church, he will have hatred towards that which seeks to destroy it. To truly love something means that there is also going to be hatred as well. I talk about this example with my kids, right? Like if I love my kids deeply, dearly. So if I watch someone walk up to my kids and start destroying my kids in whatever way, it is not loving of me towards them to just let that transpire. I will at minimum have hatred towards the actions being committed against them. True love will require hate. For God to not hate evil means the whole of the Bible becomes unraveled. Now what we see today is God showing immense patience. But a day is coming when he will put an end to evil. 
A day is coming when he will pour out his wrath against evil. Furthermore, God demonstrates his love by being personally unjustly destroyed by evil. He is the epitome of love. Jesus, as we've repeatedly seen throughout Revelation, is the lamb who was slain. And that's how he was pictured on the mountain. But what we've also seen previously and see now again is he's also the lion who will slay the wicked. Okay? Jesus is the conquering lion as well. Jesus isn't playing, and this is seen most acutely through his death on the cross. He will come, he will conquer, he will set things right. Okay, last thing here. Outside the city, I just want to talk briefly about this phrase. All of this bloodshed that we're talking about in Revelation 14 is happening outside of the city. And this is important for us to See, I love how these biblical themes pop up and have such deep meaning. So if you go back to the Old Testament, what you'll find is that when someone was unclean, they were sent outside the city. If someone disobeyed God's law and required stoning, okay, that occurred outside the city. Remains of sacrifices were taken outside the camp or outside the city. It was unclean and unsafe outside the city. Now what we learn about Jesus is that Jesus went outside the city for us. He died on the cross outside the city. This is what we read in these couple of verses. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, not in the city. It was outside the city. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the city in order to sanctify the people through his blood. This is not accidental. Okay? This demonstrates the extent of Jesus' love. Jesus took on all of our uncleanness, all of our shame, everything that was worthy of God's wrath, everything that would drive us out of the city. Jesus went outside of the city and took that upon himself. And he did it in love. And so... The fact that all of this is occurring outside of the city is of vital importance. Ultimately, we don't want to end up outside the city where God's wrath will be poured out. But every Christian needs to go outside the city to be saved. Because outside the city is where we're confronted with the cross. It's when we're banished outside the city that we're confronted with our own uncleanness. We see our own uncleanness and ultimately our need for Jesus and his willingness to take our sin and our uncleanness upon himself. And it's there we find Jesus. And it's there then we're united with Jesus and he brings us back into the city, back into the garden. It's the best news ever. Jesus goes outside the city, saves us, and brings us into his own city. Three points of gospel application for us, real brief here. First of all, Jesus went outside the city for you, for us, to save us, to save us from our sin, to save us from his wrath. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is also the true judge. In our everyday lives, we tend to care to think about what others think of us, right? How they might judge us for what we wear, how we might look, how much rust is on our car, 
how good our kids are at said activity, if a classmate thinks we're cool or not. Revelation is painting the picture for us that it's only always about Jesus and what he thinks. Revelation 14 is whispering to us what matters is Jesus. What matters is Jesus. Not what anyone else might see, say or think about us. Ultimately, it matters what Jesus says. And then lastly, blessing is only found through enduring faith in Jesus. So let's commit to him. Let's vigorously, ferociously put our trust in Jesus. Let's help one another in making the refrain of our lives, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus.